There is one concern that we should address. Inevitably, we have scooped the cards as drills, so people have seen the art. We have not seen the text. To the people that are disappointed that we have done drills for the third time in a row and forced you to listen to our content to get the text of the cards... Again, we were going to release it in 24 hours anyway. Inevitably, somebody's going to transcribe it before then. But uh, get fucked. We're going to do it again. We're always going to do drills. Don't ever expect us to put it up front. You will have to listen. You will get it in 24 hours unless somebody else transcribes it. So, like, stop it. (laughs) Stop complaining. Stop it. (laughs) We tell you the text of the cards. Just listen to the episode. In fact, I'm going to quote Drill himself for this situation, which is three sayings to any fool who would claim that I am the bitch of this website. Number one, you're goddamn right. Number two, I don't give a fuck. Number three, you lose. You know what? There's nothing more to say. Run it. But seriously, I I like that we're antagonizing people about this. Hello and welcome back to the Slums Cast. I am your co-host, Neuropancer, and I am not one of the cards that we are scooping today. And I'm Josh, aka Orbital Tangent, still Netrunner's okayest player. And I'm also one of the two co-hosts that's going to give you some scoops. If you weren't able to parse that, yes, we do have scoops. This is a scoops episode. Congratulations. Welcome back to the scoops cast. Is there anything else to say? We got scoops. Actually, there is one thing to say. This is going to be a little bit different of a scoops episode from any that you've gotten from us in the past. In past scoops episodes, we've said, awesome, let's talk to one person from Null Signal Games Let's go deep on their particular aspect of how they approach making cards. And let's talk to them for the entire two hours that we're in this episode. We're actually going to just talk about the cards today. We're just talking about the cards and we're doing that with four different groups of people from Null Signal Games. We're going to first have a conversation with Conrad on the visual team about the art of these wonderful cards. We're then going to talk to Morgan on the narrative team about the narrative implications of these cards. We're then going to talk to Jamie on the rules team about the text on these cards. And finally, we're going to close off with Bilby from development. And we're going to talk about what are these cards going to be like once they're released, once they're out there, once they're in the meta. Should we get to it? Well, I think so. But before we do, I want to say shout outs to username equals pants. Pants actually came up with the idea for this episode and deserves all of the credit for it. It was a really fantastic idea, homie. And thank you for putting this together glad to be a part of it but also last thing before we get into those scoops you should know that slums cast is a cast about being spectacularly oh uh, god bad. i forgot to do that yeah oh, uh, uh, oh god this is not an episode about being good at netrunner it is in fact an episode about trying to be good at netrunner and spectacularly failing to be good at netrunner and also about scooping cards it will not make you good at netrunner it will not make you good at being a person it will make you good at knowing what four cards in the next set are 
It will, in fact, do that, so we should probably get into it. Josh, do you have any ideas what segment this should be? So what I was thinking was Artist Colony. However, since I don't really want to put together the artist colony music and come up with an idea for that, uh, we can go with an alternate name. What is an alternate name normally called? Oh, I've got it. Smurfs up. Now, to help us out talking about the visual design, the art on these scoops, which is where we're going to start this episode. We do have a special guest, Josh. Would you like to do the honors? Oh, yes, absolutely. So it's a person that at Worlds made us a little bit concerned that somebody from NSG might actually win. A member of the production team and then also wearing another hat on Parhelion, taking in and doing some of the art direction, it's Conrad. Conrad, how the hell you doing? I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it. Uh, there was a brief moment at Worlds where things were looking bright, and then uh, it was like one round after our lunch, I think, nature corrected itself. Getting swept by uh, Sam on, sweet, on stream was, uh, I will say it's on the bucket list, it's something I am glad I did. <laughs> I mean, of the outcome. one of the all-time greats of Netrunner gets swept by, I suppose. Uh, oh, and and yeah. also having a fantastic tournament, obviously finished third overall, so. There's a fun set coming out, and I think the pieces we're here to talk about are going to be really exciting, too. Absolutely. We're probably going to have to have a full episode devoted to the way that Netrunner art comes together and gets made at some point in the future. But for now, we only have these four pieces to talk about. And actually, one of them, those of you in the audience potentially might have seen already if you've been paying close attention to the things that have been spoiled on NSG. Reaper function is a fantastic little piece of art that as soon as it came out, Adam S. Doyle, it was like, we got to use this on a playmat. Reaper function displays a cybernetic Grim Reaper pointing their scythe at the viewer very menacingly. And while a lot of these deserve to be turned into playmats, this one struck me because it was like, oh, we have a tournament coming up. <laughs> it's going to separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Yeah, you may have seen Reaper Function in a spoiler for the Circuit Breaker Invitational. I know that Adam is like super good, but can you uh, walk us through, Conrad, how to, that all came together? The visual team, which is still fairly small right now, um, we kind of talk through, oh, which pieces, how do we want to display this piece? Which piece is right for which artist? And mm -hmm. Matt, who most of you know is Matt Ono online. He grabbed this one first and said, this is, I think this is an Adam piece. And, and I was mm. like, oh yeah, absolutely. The next step then in the process is like, once we assign an artist is we send them a brief, which is like a one to sometimes like three page document with like some visual references, some descriptors, as much or as little information as we feel is like necessary to get their heads wrapped around it. He is one of those artists who, in my mind, at least like has helped define what NetSpace looks like. This was mm -hmm. like a pretty easy one just to throw his way. One of my favorite details about it is the focus is on the scythe. Like it's coming right at you. That feels really fun and dynamic to me. Definitely one of those iconic artists. Yeah. My virtual backgrounds on Zoom are almost all Adam S. Doyle. The Amakua, I've got the D-Dust. So many cards that you look at them and you're like, yeah, that is what Netrunner looks like. 
for me, it's like Adam, it's like Liga also obviously yes, defines it. And then like a little more yeah. recently, like Cat Shen, they've been doing, they did a bunch to yeah. like, they all feel kind of within the same world, the same understanding of light and glow and color mm-hmm. palettes mm-hmm. to make these things pop in this really cool painterly digital weird net space way. I'm, for me, what I think of with net space, which is so great. So many artists have done incredible work in net space. It's just, you know, oh, the, oh yeah. this you throw right on the pile. This is amazing net space art that we're all going to think about for a long time. Yeah, this helps define it. When Matt wrote this brief, he called out specifically to like Ronin. Mechanically, the card has some obvious connections with Ronin. So he wanted to call kind of a harken back to that as well. So like, obviously the subject is different. We're not going the hard Japanese style, um, which is something that we're trying to like decouple from the Jinteki faction. So it's not as exclusive, like one note about that. Still that feel of this, this, you know, menacing figure in this like dark cyberspace environment, kind of shadowy with like the weapon being the point of illumination and the point of focus so most of the direction adam was given was like there's a scythe it is a digital space look at those pieces you did for the game before and many artists do this they, they send you like a couple rough sketches of a couple different versions mm-hmm. this was a really hard one to pick from amalgamated some of these pieces together like the scythe pattern was from a different sketch and this one from a different mm-hmm. one we sent him some russian and then later greenlandic peasant mm-hmm. garb to look at for this figure specificity can be really important visually and like tying it to the setting like that is fun and kind of exciting but then it's also really helpful to have pieces that are a little bit more like a cycle agnostic almost so that you can slot into any id into any cycle you can play it at any time and it doesn't feel weird to be you know i'm back in in borealis cycle doing this weird thing that doesn't really make sense for like the character i'm playing right now in this game mm-hmm. so yeah we tried with these different looks of like what this peasant garb looked like but this kind of more slightly more generic and, and like the detail of the face and everything being very vague drew the focus back to the scythe in a way that was really very satisfying and really dynamic. It is doing some damage to you. And I really like that weapon being in the runner's face, being Mm -hmm. kind of front and center. That sense of movement on the art makes it feel like it matches the effect of that quick hit. This is, it's always hard doing art for ambushes. You're not actually going to see it on the board that much. When you res this, when you flip this over, it has that really visually striking, mm-hmm. oh no moment where the runner yeah. sees like, plus... people will live in fear of this card. Yes, yes. <laughs> As they Based should. on that art, I know what, yeah. Yeah. what's coming. Yeah. yeah. You Act almost don't have to look at the text box, right? This is not, this I don't like for this me. for me. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I love and it. And there's always that moment as the corp where you draw it too, and you get to be like, oh, cool, we have this really visually striking art. As I always say, I think there is a genuine synergy that comes from killing someone with a card that you have a plane out of. And like, we're, we're potentially <laughs> unlocking that for people. <laughs> I, I warned really you. I warned you. You sat down. <laughs> yeah. You, I warned you. Should we talk about meat space real quick? Comrade, I noticed that you have a card art in your virtual background right now that is actually one of the cards we have to talk about today. This is hybrid release when you told me we would get to talk about this one uh i think this is gonna be i I was excited for it because this one actually links back to a card from midnight sun to moon pool i when i was first integrating with the the visual team and so i wrote the brief for moon pool the image was clear at least in my mind of okay it's this jinteki lab and it's very clean and there's these tubes in the side but i think the actual like pitch we were given from narrative was basically just like a moon pool with some jinteki clone or hybrid creature thing 
sat with it for a while and I was like, I was like, what, what are they making? Like, what are these creatures? Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, it has to be, you know, water related. Otherwise, why would the moon pool matter? So let's go down that path. And then I looked at the rules text, the mechanics of the card to try and draw more inspiration. The, the idea I came up with, and like Morgan may disagree, this may not be canon. This was like my visual inspiration for this. These are failed clones for one form or another that are being repurposed into these hybrid sea life creatures. Either the cards you trash from HQ or the cards you bring back from archives and using them for new projects, which feels like grossly Jinteki of like, we created life, but it wasn't good enough. So we're repurposing it to our needs. <laughs> Another Jinteki card in Parhelion has that approach yeah. to creation. So yeah, so oh. I pulled inspiration from like Pirates of the Caribbean and like the, mm. the clickers from The Last of Us and stuff of like, what would Ooh. it look like to do these kind of like hybrid looking humanoid clones, but bred with like strange sea life, you know, and not mm-hmm. necessarily like fish people, but like coral people or urchin yeah. or like something a little less, you know, just mermaid, merman, merfolky. We get fish people all the time. I mean, you know, Breath of right. the Wild, you've got fish people all over and it is recognizably alien and recognizably oceanic, but in a way that I don't think I've seen exactly this take on it before. I will admit, I don't know a lot about coral, but like coral as a life form is so like interesting and dynamic. It's absolutely of this world. It's essential to the (laughs) environment of our world. And yet we understand it's so alien at the same time. Um, So credit to to Ollie Boldador, who's done a ton of work for us. He was the one who came up with the kind of what the initial creature looked like on Moonpool. So when we come around to this card to hybrid release, I was like, oh, there's no question in my mind. Like we've introduced this hybrid. It's only shown up on one card so far. We got to play out that storyline a little bit more. And now there's this hybrid release out into the world. And we see wading out into the water with some biometrics going from obviously some Jinteki scientists scanning them somewhere. It looks super ominous. My favorite part of it, without fiction to go along with this, without seeing any other cards, you look at this. And you can tell immediately, based on this one creature that's looking back at the viewer, is showing that intelligence because the creature's looking back. I want to kill you. I want to fuck you up. But I know that's going to be bad for me. So you know what? I'm going to continue walking. But I want you to know that I really want to. Yeah, and I'll be honest. Like, I don't know what the end goal for these creatures is in Jinteki's big plan, right? Like, what is Mm. the goal of making these? It's just this ominous feeling of this army of them marching out into the waves and exactly the -the over-the-shoulder look back with such disdain and such hatred. Yet, this isn't a moment of rebellion or anything. No, it is. They are, this creature is one of at least dozens and it's going to march into the waves and do whatever it's it's been genetically programmed to do i guess but it's not going to be happy about it and it's like that those little details really dark and ominous in a way that i find really satisfying oh i just want to give a shout out to the artist too marlon ruiz who's like pretty new for us when we kind Mm. of decided creature stuff um and he had recently done he'd only done one piece for us prior and it was the the crown of servers at worlds this year he did the hydra art which is that wonderful like skull cyber cybernetic matrix meets lord of the rings meets yeah. that space thing 
but well, he just like I, knocked I out of the park with this yeah, one. Yeah, I I did not realize this was an artist new to Netrunner because this just fits the feel so perfectly. Right? Even the little details that the user interface, like it looks correct. It looks like the Netrunner universe in terms of like what a HUD looks like. Part of our brief writing process is often going back and looking at past art and being like, here are mm-hmm. great examples of this. So like the HUD, the like overlay with all the, the biometrics and whatnot wasn't part of the original piece he sent us. Oh, like, interesting. Feeling it's missing something. It just needs a little more. It's a very cool and like dynamic mm-hmm. scene, but something to bring it back, as you said, like into that world a little bit more. I said, mm-hmm. I think we need like some metrics, not just to like make it feel a little more net runnery and not strange fantasy sci-fi <laughs> alien <laughs> yep. creature to link it back to like, oh, this is this is intentional. This is Jinteki doing something. These creatures yeah. don't just exist in the world. They're even tracking the one looking at them like very closely. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you got the numbers for that guy pulled up. Ties it back to Regenesis as well, where you see the two scientists and one of them is holding up like a big ass pair of like computerized binoculars looking at that mammoth. Yeah. Yeah. That too. Part of what's been so fun about specifically with what Jinteki's been doing in this set is like we've gotten to bring some new artists in who don't necessarily maybe wouldn't fit the normal net runner scene, but because we're doing so much in the work of like animals and creatures and whatnot, we get to say like, oh, okay, let's find some really cool like animal artists and Regenesis. Anthony Hutchins is like brand new to the, to us to Netrunner in general with that piece, and it's like such oh, wow. a stunning piece. And yeah, and we got him back for for Parhelion too because of that. That makes me so happy to hear it because like I would not have known that that artist was new to Netrunner because it just it just fit perfectly. It was like yeah, I understand exactly what Genteki's doing with this agenda. Speaking of a card that we know is somewhat thematically linked, it's there's... actually linked with Regenesis too. She's featured okay. in the flavor text of Regenesis. We were told up front, these are cards with a narrative link. So the next card is a card called Dr. Vientian Keeling. Characters, because they are so iconic and such a part of the narrative and the world building, usually when once we have like a specific character either depicted, but especially more so when that character, when it's an asset, when it's an upgrade, that, that character is the focus of the card. Morgan and the rest of the narrative team do a lot of work and have a pretty clear idea of who that character is by the time they get to us. Keeling is Australian and Laotian heritage. So like that gives us a really clear, specific starting point to think about visually of like, oh, okay, like there are details in the depiction of that character then that are important and the Mm -hmm. representation of these heritage. That's something I've always loved about Netrunner from the beginning is these like multicultural characters and getting an honest depiction of those characters and those that kind of like mixed heritage uh, representation. It gives a clear mood as well. We're, We're up here in Greenland. This is clearly an outsider. It's funny you use that word. That was one of the, so we get these narrative, well, before we write the brief narrative sends us like a one or to three sentence art pitch. And that was part of it is like, she is an outsider, not just an outsider in this location, but also kind of like that reclusive scientist outsider feel, leave me alone so I can save the world kind of feel. This is very much a like, why are you bothering me while I'm trying yeah. to work? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that <laughs> eye contact with like the, the the viewer, we are interrupting her in a moment of, of her studies and her, yeah. her uh, research. Neither hand has gone away from what she was doing. One of them is yep. still on the keyboard. One of them is still on the pen. Didn't even pause what was happening to deal with you. Do you have another stupid question that I can answer? Isagrin actually um, wrote the brief for this one. Oh, nice. And included 
a lot of research um, and details like the sash that she's wearing is, uh, I believe, a traditional Laotian sash. And we pulled up some mm. reference images for that and did a little bit of research into that to try and like, oh, that's cool. if we're going to have a character with this heritage, we want to make sure that we can actually like do it some justice and, and not just have it be like checking a box, you know? That fits pretty well too, Jeff. A background as like actually a bench scientist as well, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, chemist. That's been a lot of fun um, because the visual team is still a, a little bit bare bones, and we're working on recruiting for that these days. Um, when the brief writing process starts, we usually put the call out to um, members of other teams, like, "Hey, do you mm -hmm. want to take some briefs?" It's more or less grab as you can. Yeah. So having people grab things that they're like, oh, this actually relates to either a hobby or my work or a field of interest. There was a lot of that in this being like, oh, I can actually write about this card because it it's I have background knowledge into it, which is like yeah. very satisfying. And it and it adds that mm -hmm. that level of depth. If you know you know kind of feeling it's like, oh, it's not mm -hmm. just some, mm -hmm. you know, random artist trying to depict what a science lab might look like. There are specific call outs that are useful, you know. Including really... what looks like very sketchy cable management on the monitor yes. on the left like, <laughs> like that's that is so accurate to every scientist office i've ever been in <laughs> that's accurate to every office my dude unless you have a person at their desk that actually cares about cable management which is like yeah. one in ten of us can we take a moment to briefly talk about the the crab guy. Yeah. That's... Shout out to Dimmick, who's the artist for this. She's mm -hmm. done awesome work. Folks who are listening are probably familiar with her work. She's done a lot of like really good likeness cards. She did a couple champ cards recently. So she did Drago. She did Mutually oh, yeah. Short Destruction. So yeah, I mean, there was this call to like link with these like crustacean, corally, merfolk from the other cards. Um, but not a lot of specificity around that. So she kind of just took the inspiration images and the description we gave and came up with this and like, but it's also kind of new and different. It's not the creatures in those pieces necessarily. It kind of looks mm -hmm. like maybe the next generation of it or or theorization of what, you know, what the next level of that kind of hybrid creation might be. The last thing I really struck me about this one is like the lighting. It's almost like yeah. abstract in this way where the whole background is like colored with this palish blue, almost turquoise light that looks kind of monochrome in a way that I actually really love. And it's to me, it straddles the line between like, is this abstract or is this just like cold clinical lab lighting where she doesn't need yeah. everything to be well lit? She's in, you know, her own lighting over her desk. And that's where we get a little bit more natural light and natural color in there. And the rest of it is a little washed out to me visually what that does yeah. not only does it like make her pop and feel more like the center of the piece it makes the lab feel really clean and sterile and it's talking back to what we were saying too about you know reaper function and snare and whatnot like it's a really unique color palette so like when this gets res when this hits mm -hmm. the table it's going to be visually recognizable really quick which is nice especially considering like yeah it's something the runner is going to have a lot of feelings about when it gets rest <laughs> that's that's correct yeah <laughs> <laughs> Is this a lighting choice that has to do with like something in the lab? Like, is this you don't want to expose it to certain wavelengths of light because mm -hmm. it like makes it denature faster? I, I don't know. The fact that I see this lighting choice and that's kind of where my mind goes really conveys to me how well this has really sold, like this being a mm -hmm. researcher who has their reasons for what they're doing. If you think of like photo exposure rooms, that's like another mm -hmm. level. That's so cool. I'm going to say that's canon now. I don't know if that's been yes. the intent, but I'm, I like that too much. <laughs> you heard it here first. We have updated the canon of Netrunner. Speaking of people on this podcast updating the canon of Netrunner, should we move on to the final card we have to talk about today? Yeah, let's check it out. Yeah, this is a card called Vampira Nasa. 
I actually wrote the art brief for this card because I saw Vampira Nasa. I was like, what the heck is a Vampira Nasa? I Googled it. I saw it was this like weird looking squid. And I was like, well, I have to do the art for this one. <laughs> There's so many things I love about this piece, both yeah. like visually itself and what it means for the visual department. Just, I don't know, the, the whole process for this one has been really satisfying. It's kind of hard to know where to start first, like giant prehistoric squid ice. I love it. I always connect with cards that have like nature, natural world, animal or plant life themes and like mythology and folklore. I lose myself down that Wikipedia rabbit hole, you know, the brief for bladder wart. And now it's like in my brain forever. I know way more about bladder wart plants than I ever thought I would ever need to, considering I didn't know they existed until I was writing that brief. <laughs> so getting you to kind of like nerd out on this. And then I then when you pass me the brief to look over and to edit, I was just like, this thing's cool. I never knew this yeah. thing existed. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that's interesting about them is they're actually at least to our knowledge, extinct nowadays. Right. These squids do not exist anymore. It's got two really long tentacles and then a bunch of shorter ones. So like the long ones grab stuff, pull it in, and then the short ones secure it while it eats. It already kind of tells a story just from the way that its legs work. I had a long think thinking about what is the squid going to be eating? Because we don't actually have that many underwater animals in Netrunner. I wanted it to like not be just wrong. Like I didn't want it to be eating a century breaker when it's like, well, what are you talking about? The century breaker can break this. We can't feature Darwin on every card. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I figured, well, Lamprey doesn't like running into this thing. Might as well show that. Have it eat a Lamprey. Who did the art on this one? So this is is another reason I'm really excited. This is Ed Mantinian, or Ed Mantinian, who is possibly one of the most prolific prolific fantasy flight era artist. This is his yeah. first time working with us on this set. Oh, that's so um, cool. But I think he has like almost 80 cards in the game already at this point. And when we first reached out to him, he mm-hmm. wrote back and he's like, oh, I'm really down to try it. I'm sorry. I'm only able to do seven this set. <laughs> so oh, he wow. has almost like 10% of this cycle. Are, wow. It's just so much fun to bring back these like iconic FFG mm-hmm. era artists. And again, I want to give like credit to Matt. Matt did a bunch of legwork to bring back mm-hmm. artists like this into the fold and get them to be working with us again. But like he's Roto Turret, the original mimic with the, the mask. He does a lot of weird cyberspace, net spacey stuff like Cybernex Virus Suite is one of his. Oh, I think yeah. he did all of the Geist uh, disposable breaking and entry, the B&E breakers. Dude knows cyberspace. Yeah. I have to highlight how much of a power move it is to go, oh, you know... I'm really swamped. I can only do seven. I can only do seven. Yeah. Yeah. As the interim art director getting that email back, it was like, oh, oh, great. Oh, this is good. Yeah. This is just a win all over because two or three pieces is, you know, pretty, pretty reasonable for what a lot of artists do. And then we get lucky with some artists who are like, oh, yeah, I can actually do a few more. But to get seven yeah. from one person, that's just so exciting. Back to our squid friend, like you see it, like the color, the light and the color contrast between like this vibrant luminescent blue squid and the like rich orangey red of lamprey result is so striking. This one, I actually did see a little bit of the back and forth after the brief was written before the piece was finalized. And you had the same color contrast, you had the same general pose. It looked very similar to this to begin with. But one thing that I think happened during revision was the area like where the lamprey is actually being grabbed, like the mouth got a lot brighter 
look at this. This is the thing that hurts you. It is that it is light and color <laughs> implying violence is like, yeah. Yeah. And we didn't have to say a lot of that. This one, there was, as you, yeah, there was some back and forth and like the initial version, the squid was a lot darker mm-hmm. and lamprey was a lot brighter, which makes sense because the original lamprey yeah. art is like, so it is, it is brilliantly bright. The, the eye kept getting drawn to lamprey and I was like, well, that's not really the focus of the card. Sent Ed some feedback and he adjusted it, but like, we didn't have to necessarily say like, also it had these like amazing vibrant light effects to oh my God, the, right? the yeah. like collision point, the point where the lamprey is being eaten. He just ran with it and did that. And it's like, okay, dude clearly knows what he's yeah. doing. A pro, like an absolute yeah. pro. Yeah. I love the little details here. One of the things that's also weird about the Vampirinasa squid, it has these little spines on the legs, which presumably help it hold on to things. The short legs have those kind of along the whole leg. And so you can see that very clearly, like they're here helping it grip onto lamprey. The longer limbs only have them at the end. They're wrapped around. You don't see the spines there. Just such good attention to detail here. And that's why I love the brief writing process too. And and getting to nerd out about these things and go deep into it is like, you can find those details. One of the favorite, my favorite things about Netrunner has always been the way that like story and theme and mechanics overlap. And there's such a rich detail, attention to detail in so much of the artwork already that I'll play the same card for six months, a year, two years, and then look at it differently one day and be like, oh my God, I never realized that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, and it is, and it's correct. It's not just like, oh, cool aesthetics. Sometimes I love that too. But yeah. usually mm-hmm. with like some kind of like reason and some foundation based mm-hmm. in something, which is so satisfying because it just yeah. makes the world feel a little bit more consistent and in that way also more alive in a real way and josh you and i have already talked a little bit about this there's at least one piece coming out where there's like little tiny little details that i was like this is a dumb visual gag or a visual pun i will die on this hill of like (laughs) i want to include fun details and easter eggs for people to find sometimes (laughs) they'll be stupid sometimes they'll be you know tied directly to cultures represented in the piece or cultures represented that narratives exploring sometimes they'll just be fun little gags you know mm-hmm. anything to make the world feel feel more more rich and more in depth there's always going to be something to look for you know you know you, you yeah. got my my seal of approval i don't know what that means <laughs> the okayest seal of approval i guess Matt also, I've, I've wanted to make a big point of saying like this set in particular, he went out and like rounded up a bunch of emails and contact information and reached out mm-hmm. and did the, laid the groundwork to bring back a bunch of old FFG artists. I think we're nice. getting like three or four old FFG, like iconic FFG artists in this set who haven't worked with us before. So it's going to be fun to kind of bring those styles back into the world. That's the end of the time that we have to talk about the visuals on the cards, the art on the cards. So I'm going to say another thank you to Conrad. Thank you for being here, talking about the art with us. It's been a pleasure having you on. Yeah, thank you. Uh, This has been real joy. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. Would you like to give any shout outs while you are here on the Slums cast? Oh, I can't say no to that. Um, I just want to give a shout out to everyone who's helped out, obviously, with the, the visual team now, specifically Matt, um, kind of being in a department of like two, two and a half people. He and I have been working together really closely since he came on with NSG. He and I came on pretty close to each other. And he's just like has such a fantastic vision for the world and for bringing back these FFG artists and continuing mm-hmm. to like build and develop. The roster of artists we have to depict this like really rich world has been fantastic. Also shout out to Morgan and the rest of narrative for giving us like these really thematic and interesting characters and themes to play around with. My OG team, the team that got me into NSG, the producing team for keeping a hand on the rudder and offering a little extra support whenever it's needed. It's been great. Agreed with all of those. Thanks again for being on. Thank you all. Morgan sounds like 
a gangster name almost. And, you know, hmm. talking with Morgan is always such a delight that normally it's an offer you can't refuse. An offer you can't refuse. Did you say that Morgan was a gangster name just to justify using an offer you can't refuse? Yes. Yes, I did. Because it, it really doesn't sound like a gangster name to me. My, my point is, my point is like, I don't have a point. Let's let's just get to the cards. How about it? Well, actually, Josh, you always introduce the special guests. Do you want to introduce our current special guest? Well, I think I already did, but I will go ahead and do that. So we have the NSG narrative director, done several other things for NSG, including SBL development and some point involved in something OP related as well. I've been... A former member in the development team. I've been playtest coordinator. I was a dev liaison for SBL, and I've also done enough design stuff that could have been considered part of a design team for a while. Okay, so to wrap that all up and sum it all up, the wearer of many hats, it's motherfucking Morgan. Morgan, how the hell are you doing? I am very well. How are both of you doing tonight? Today? It is the most wonderful time of the year. It is not only scoop season. It is also the time that you normally say the most wonderful time of the year. So people won't, they won't look at me weird for saying that. I'll look because at you weird anyway. Getting, I, I know. getting close towards the awkward family dinners. It is beginning to look a lot like Scoopsmas. I agree. It sure is. We have four cards this time around to talk about. They're all from Genteki. So this is a good opportunity, I think, for us since... We don't usually have the narrative director on to ask this type of question. What's the deal with Jinteki in Borealis? What What's Jinteki doing, generally speaking? Yeah, Jinteki were a little bit mysterious in um, in that sign, the, the first half mm -hmm. of Borealis. Sable is our view character. Her location in the first half of the cycle in Midnight Sun is still in northern Siberia, near Vladisvask, interacting with the two corporations who are most heavily in that area. But in Parhelion, she's now uh, northern Canada and Greenland and also just kind of the waters of the Arctic. She's now in the kind of territory of Isoak and Thule. So yeah, now we're, we're getting to see a bit more about what's going on with both of them. The thing about Jinteki is that this is possibly one of the sort of nicer or more benevolent-ish Jinteki divisions. They're all about biodiversity, bringing back sort of ecological mm. situations that existed prior to a lot of, say, climate change or just overfishing. Mm. They're out here, you know, cloning extinct animals, bringing back aquatic flora, and just generally trying to you know, see what positive effect they can have on a particular ecological region. Not only their cloning, but also just other biotechnology that they have. So it's a little bit of a test bed, and it's also Jinteki wants to fix some of the planet because good PR, and also mm -hmm. it's kind of important to want the planet that you're business exists on to function this is such an interesting angle on it that i think we, we get some of that in the game global food initiative being a, a good example I, I really like this angle on you have a part of the corp that looks a little more benevolent but you've still got teeth to it they still don't want the runner poking around in any real way right 
the thing with Isoac is that even though they are either doing something that is ultimately benevolent and good for society and the planet, there's always going to be some kind of ulterior purpose for this. And like mm -hmm. I said, experimentation, testing. If they're able to discover that they do have the capabilities to really reshape an ec ecological zone in the world, then that's a pretty profound and significant discovery. And there are things that they can do with that technology and potential to affect things. That's a pretty big deal for them. And then there's uh, some other things that they are kind of doing up there as well, which uh, actually one of the cards here does happen to show. I was actually going to ask about that next because I was going to push back against the idea of benevolence a little bit because I, I was thinking, looking at this this first card that we got, there's a little non-benevolence here as well because this seems to call back to Moonpool. And the card that we're scooping is called Hybrid Release. And I'm just wondering, what is the deal with these guys? The art is a particular, one of those kind of favorites of mine from uh, Pahelian, just because of how striking it is in a way. I, it's definitely a, a, just a weird piece, but yeah, it, it's got a bunch of the humanoid coral hybrid creatures that were seen, one film was seen in Moonpool, Moon like you mentioned, and this time there, there's a bunch of them, and they're all going into the sea. Jinteki doing experimentation. <laughs> what can we make? They clearly would have some kind of important purpose in the sea, but hmm, I wonder what that might be. The flavor text definitely also hints at this much less benevolent side. This is a quote from Dr. Vientian Keeling. By disabling their body's ability to create a variety of necessary enzymes, we've ensured their loyalty to us. If they don't return for supplements every month, they die. Simple as that. That's not the most benevolent thing I've ever heard. Well, it's not benevolent at all. <laughs> I mean, clones aren't people. So the, I was talking about, you know, benevolence towards humankind and the uh. <laughs> ecology of, and the, you know, ecology overall. Like, no, benevolence is a subjective thing, surely? I mean, look, you know, they're, they're weird creatures that Jinteki has released into the Arctic Ocean for some purpose, and clearly they want to make sure that they don't run amok. Well, I, I actually like the callback to another Jinteki card here, like ensuring their loyalty, enforcing their loyalty. There's a definite resonance there. Yep. There is also a uh, commonality between a few of the other cards in Pahelion and this one with the idea of loyalty and mm -hmm. control, I suppose. I hope people keep an eye out for connections, not just within factions, but also across factions, because there's a lot more of them uh, in Pahelion than there have been in our previous cycles and, and sets. And I've attempted not only have like cohesion, but within factions, uh, also between the factions and even between the mm. sides to a certain degree as well. I really want to ensure that the cards that we put out clearly feel like they come from not just the same setting, but also like the same storyline and, and time period. I think that this really does that. In addition to Jinteki being up to some new tricks, I mean, obviously with the corporate world, you've got to be moving forward or you're dead. It reaches back to the whole clones are not people aspect of Jinteki. It, it looks like they very mu much are up to their old ways. That brings up like an interesting 
interesting like narrative point. These hybrids, almost like a specialized clone. Jinteki's done this before too, messed with the DNA of clones to suit them to certain environments. We have a, an example of that in Turtlebacks. Um, exactly. They, yes. They're engineering people almost to go into the ocean. I'm sorry, clones aren't people. That is pretty clearly what part of this is. And like you look at the one in Moonpool, and the idea there is that they're testing out that particular entity's capabilities in underwater environments where they're able to observe it and it's able to easily come back up. Uh, and uh, obviously, whatever they were trying to figure out there has uh, worked out enough that they're actually doing a, a full release of this new product line. It sounds so much more sinister when you put it in corporate speak like that, to be completely honest. <laughs> <laughs> the release of a new yeah. product line. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I, I am sort of adopting a little bit of a person here because to some degree, some questions are better left unanswered by me. But also, it's just kind of fun to do that from time to time, and I don't always get to do it. And, you know, I was like, I'm coming on the slums cast, and the slums cast is typically kind of zany, so why don't I do a little bit of, you know, getting into character of, of the Jinto? Oh, absolutely. Course. On the note of getting in character, mm. should we talk about the character that just gave us mm. that quote? Should we talk about Dr. Keeling? This is like a kind of a really big power card for a number of different sort of Jinteki archetypes. That as you know, an asset is already prime real estate for being a corp character of some sort. And one thing I really wanted to do with Borealis overall, and especially Parhelion, was to make sure that each of the corps has a named special actual character from the division in terms of like what the actual human aspect of the, the corporations are. Dr. Keeling is the lead researcher at ISOAC for their mm. entire uh, ecology revival project. Oh, um, okay. So a, yeah. a very big deal. Yeah. I think it, it makes sense that this is like someone who narratively has a lot of... I have exactly. to interject. So. She's not a big deal. That's uh, HP. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair, fair. <laughs> Keeling's philosophy and outlook is very let me do my thing or this biosphere is going to eventually collapse let me work or you will all eventually die blunt pragmatism she is here for the work she is not a, a corporate entity within the corporations she is a researcher and she has a, a purpose and a goal. You know, if Jinteki has some ulterior motives, as long as they're compatible with her goals and her research, then mm. she's okay with that. She'll likely feature in fiction for uh, Isoac previous season, which I imagine is probably going to be already out by the time you know, people are listening to this. Please, please definitely go go read that piece. It's by one of the new additions to my team, in fact. So oh. uh, definitely look forward to that. Right. Like you have this tension here of Dr. Keeling wants to do things that on their face are good. But the fact that you have this brilliant researcher who is able to make these things happen enables all of the shenanigans that Jinteki wants to do. Mm -hmm. So there's just so much power oh, there. And, and, and the flavor text is her numbers never lie but she doesn't write the words that accompany them, which I think also gets at that really well. She's not in marketing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like exactly, yeah. She sends up her reports and they take all the numbers, all the stuff that they want to show to shareholders or to investors or to the public, and they write mm -hmm. what it is that they're actually wanting to say. Pretty normal. I mean, how much the sort of thing I've experienced myself in my own professional life at times as well, how it is.
Just with these two bits of flavor text, one of the things that that strikes me about this character that's that's kind of cool. I've always liked this about, say, Halo, Doctor Halsey. Is this character mm. seems to be that person that is looking at the totality of their goal? Well, there are certain means here some people would look down, but it's just the science and we need to get to the end result. So we're going to do what we need to do to do the science. We're disabling enzymes in their bodies. So they got to come back. If they don't, they fucking die. She also is not benevolent. Like even if her end goal is to save humanity, she's discarding a lot of safeguards. You would think that a doctor would have, you know, the whole thing about doctors is do no harm, right? Uh, I think she's doing a lot of harm. That's that's only if you take the Hippocratic Oath. I mean, if like a doctor of ecology doesn't take the Hippocratic Oath usually. Fair enough. Maybe they should. If you have the the (laughs) most stringent ethics here, you don't get the best data collection. That's the problem. Ooh, (laughs) Jesus Christ. Survivability is not a valuable data point. Deep Space Nine. There's a genetically created modified species. They're basically the soldiers for one of the, the like factions that is involved in the whole plot of Deep Space Nine called the Jemadar. Mm-hmm. Well, they're kind of religious in a sense in that they're, mm-hmm. they view their creators as gods, but their creators keep them under control by there's this drug that they need in order to actually function called the white. Huh. Hybrid release flavor text isn't a piece that I wrote. And when I asked the person who did write this suggestion, they hadn't watched Deep Space Nine either. It was like, oh, this is like exactly that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. So for anyone out there who's you know watched all that and is familiar with that, you're probably getting a simple vibe here. And kind of interesting that the goals of the people who created the Jemadar aren't so alien to how healing views like her goals and purpose as well. I kind of feel almost like a little bit humbled or like a bit lucky that I'm able to have a theme crossover with a piece of fiction that I have so much respect for. It's also kind of validating to realize that the kind of stuff that I'm trying to touch on here is the sort of stuff that really highly respected pieces of science fiction also touch on too. The idea of wanting to be able to control the things that you create to ensure not only are they loyal to you, but also you're able to much more directly control their behavior over a really extended period of time. It's a very human thing, but it's also a very corporate, both individual humans, but also humans collectively try to do. That's a reflection of humanity within these corporations that we are trying to talk about. And having one of Mm -hmm. the human characters displaying that while still also being someone who is actively doing a good thing in some senses. Yeah, there's a a conflict that I find compelling. This is helicopter parenting up to a, a much higher degree, right? It's <laughs> literally being able to actually control rather than just trying to. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's that's actually really funny. Paris, and I love that. I yeah, did I notice that there is a subtype on Dr. Keeling, which we haven't seen before. Academic. What's the deal there? Yeah. So uh, Academic is a, a new evergreen narrative subtype. It doesn't have any mechanical interactions mm-hmm. it's only on keely in this set so the basically the, the main reason for that is that 
corporation didn't really have its own equivalent of captain as like a sort of catch-all subtype to have for named specific individuals there is character but it's very vague and it's not very satisfying and it's also kind of murky as to what it actually like means and it's the type of thing that you would expect to also see on like sysop and executives if this card is you know a, a character then why not those as well so yeah. we're why no depreciating. yeah exactly so like character is going we're not going to be using that anymore we're, we'll be using like executive and mm. sysop more and also i've added academic as something that's mm. used for you know like a, a researcher scientist exclusively corp side so it's similar mm. to like industrial we introduced in midnight sun subtypes are, are cool and fun and they're a way to you know communicate yeah. the nature of something uh in a very you know condensed way we want to do that for people cards as well i'm a big okay. fan of narrative primary subtypes like you know unorthodox right that was that was that was a subtype that like never meant anything in the rules but like yeah God, the game's so much better because it exists i love it and i wish ffg had used it more because yeah it just sort of felt like an orphaned one after a while and yeah. <laughs> like sometimes when you get you know subtypes that end up being so overly specific then mm. it feels like there's not as much use for it the third card we have to talk about is a card called Reaper Function. This one seems a little bit different from the last two we just talked about. What's going on in Reaper Function? So it's just a fun Jinteki card. I mean, like, it's the, the concept of, like, a, a digital Jinteki entity offensive construct rather than purely defensive construct sent out to, I guess, hunt things down and go and make stuff pay for their mistakes. I think that's pretty well displayed in the you know, actual effect of the card. If the runner doesn't go and find and kill it, then uh, yeah, they, they're going to reap the whirlwind. Try to evoke a bit with the flavor text as well. But also this is an Adam Doyle art piece. There's a certain elegance to all of his art that I find very evocative and, and fascinating to look at, uh, even in like you know, the stuff that is blunt or direct. I kind of wanted to speak to that a little bit in some of the flavor text too, so I just had a bit of fun with that. Like this is just you know a, a standalone Jinteki card that you could you would see in you know any Jinteki division, and it's always good to have that kind of stuff. That's also why like the figure doesn't really seem culturally from anything specific. We kind of just wanted to fit in in anywhere. Even if this is a division that cares about a goal that is ultimately somewhat benevolent, this is still Jinteki. They are still doing the Jinteki thing. They will still hunt you down if you try to break into their servers. Yeah. Yep. I like that. There's a clear set of narrative cards and that there are like a clear set of meta narrative cards. We do have to give the people what they need on this. We did it on the other two cards. We got to give them the flavor text. Pants, you're good at reading flavor text. You want to you want to the flavor text here. There is an elegance to its blade and stride, but with it comes a screaming whirlwind. Nice. Yeah. You, you let them flip that face up. You get that flavor text and you hit it right to the face. That's the... you know what's interesting yeah, about this one. This one. You can rise multiples. That makes sense, too, with this idea of like this is a construct that hunts you down. If you have multiple people hunting you down at once, that's pretty bad for you. I love the flavor of it. I love the art. I love how it all works together. The flavor text yeah. is great. No notes. Yep. Should we move on to the next one? 
Vampira Nasa. What's going on narratively with Vampira Nasa? Uh, it's a big fucking squid. Um, <laughs> like it's yeah, you know, it's, it's 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 a digital squid, obviously. But yeah. it, I see sometimes players talking about you know like why is this program themed on this? Why does it have this name? Why would it look like that? Like you know why would they go to this kind of length to do it? We nerds in the any kind of IT computing related industry, game dev or art or anything, anything that digital related and has any kind of flair involved at all. Yeah, we, we just like doing that stuff because it's memorable and catchy and, you know, just kind of makes sense. And we get to have a little chuckle to ourselves at like you know a reference or whatever of course isolax uh servers are going to be protected by giant squids you know it's it's just kind of on brand <laughs> for them this is an extinct yeah. giant squid yes 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 because uh or at least as far as we know squids of like this size are are extinct like there haven't been any live sightings for a long time as far as we know is Genteki planning on bringing back this type of squid in real life? Or is this just a digital thing that they're like, oh, yeah, this fits with us. Like, this is cool. Mm, I mean, maybe. I'd be I, down for it. I, I can't say they definitely are. But if you like to think that they are, then they absolutely are. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a moving <laughs> the wrong possibility. Like, it's the sort of thing that they could do 100%. The flavor text here is great. So this is a flavor text spoken by the character Moth. I'm not sure we've encountered Moth before. Uh, you have not. Do you want and to tell us you're say? who Moth is? That is all I'm going to say. <laughs> okay. So this is by a character named Moth that we haven't encountered before. Uh, and Moth is saying, Matt, there's something big heading your way. Matt, are you hearing me? Matt. Oh, no. This is just me having a, a, a bit of a bit of fun. Um, this one did actually get rewritten quite a bit. It was originally longer uh, atmospheric scene moth in cyberspace with the main character talking a bit about like what the actual nature of the sort of tangible nature of cyberspace is like. And this is something that in a you know, fiction piece I always try and look at. It's something that I've also been you know expressing through some of the cards, Padma's Breakers in particular, some of the flavor text you know, refers to the idea of you know NetSpace being very malleable and you know, you can use that to your advantage like the you know concept of propeller using like fluid dynamics to literally break apart ice the idea here is that you know isoac also leverages that kind of thing and their mm. servers when you actually enter them via a bmi in the, the tangible net space sense it's like being in the ocean and mm. you know leverage that kind of environmental difference there's a lot of runners i'm going to be used to being in that kind of environment in in that space mm. it allows them to leverage that and you know if they can do that by having a uh, giant squid that lurks in the darkness and comes out to grab you kind of kind of terrifying in a lot of respects and the other thing for the flavor text is that it's um, uh, me giving art director for uh, borealis a little bit of a homage on the car you know something that i kind of actually have started doing a little bit more you know like that's been done in the past in some of our other sets uh, like you know mm -hmm. And, and we both did that a little bit. And I decided in Parhelion that I wanted to do some nulls to a bunch of different people in null signal uh, in various forms. Some people might think that's really indulgent of me. And, uh, you know, that's fine. That's, you know, they're, they're kind of prerogative. But to me, I, I look at the work that, you know, everyone does 
voluntary and how much focus and just attention to detail that everything is done. And also just like how tightly the teams have all kind of grown together and, and, and work together. And I kind of wanted to say something about that. So there's a bunch of cards that, you know, kind of reference some of the teams collectively. I won't like spoil what any of those are because I'd, I'd love to see people try and puzzle them out themselves. Matt only came on late last year. Borealis was in a, in a weird spot in terms of like art and, and narrative and stuff. And he's done a, a great job. I really respect like what he's managed to do. You know, when he saw this, this actual piece, again, double checked. He would be okay with it and you know explain my reasoning for why i wanted to do it but we don't get paid we get paid in big satisfaction this is me getting the satisfaction of giving a nod to people in the organization um, who have you know worked so hard on all these cards mm-hmm. it's always going to be sucked you know, we, we sort of joke about how the idea of this volunteer collective continuing the game is quite punk well Using my, the the ability for me to like be able to do this with the stuff on cards is also you know bucking the trends a little bit because a lot of the time you you end up seeing like you know people putting themselves on stuff and here I wanted to use it to put other people on stuff instead. I think the use of the word punk there really resonates with me because one of the main ways that you saw the punk side of cyberpunk in early Netrunner was flavor text on cards this kind of tales from the hackers journal 12 a.m this this has that same mood it's very much this is the story of the hack that got away absolutely i will also you know point out matt is dead yeah (laughs) r.i.p he got he got oh no he got net damaged into oblivion (laughs) goodbye yeah Um, (laughs) matt yeah Uh. wrap this off by saying people will see moth again Oh. will show up again okay so that's the end of the discussion we have about the narrative side of these cards thank you so much for coming on the cast morgan oh, it was an absolute pleasure thank you very much for having me on while you're here would you like to give any shout outs uh, obviously I'd, I'd love to give shout outs to my narrative team my my editors uh nikita patrick and uh Ginevra. i'd also love to uh, give shout outs to my two staff writers uh aaron and uh calvin uh, who you know, are also both you know doing fiction for the previous season and have you know nice. helped with flavor text and just you know generally figuring out you know what what all of the the meaning and theme and arc and everything of uh, Borealis has been and they're going to be you know, continuing to do that in the future. Um, I really want to thank the you know our, our production team. They've been binding everything together as the like glue that you know producers are in, in game studios. I especially want to thank Conrad, who's been like the sort of kind of liaison for narrative and also art and on that note i also really really you know want to give matt a shout out as well you had so hard act to follow like with you know the gateway art much loved managed to put together briefs and, and help with artists and all that jazz and really do a fantastic job and you know being able to bring so many of these like, you know, ideas that, that me and my team are trying to talk about to, to life like huge huge props to matt and the, the rest of the city, especially the people who have been around for a really long time that I've gotten to know uh, you know so closely and so well. Everyone I met at Worlds last month, um, like that was that was amazing. 
you know, obviously there were, there were all these people I'd never met before. I'd never been to anything that run right out of seats. And, you know, that was just an absolute delight. Uh, and then also the people over at Shucks, especially if I was at the booth there, we had a, a fantastic time demoing the game and talking to people, uh, not just players, but also, you know, some professionals from the industry who are curious or people from media, including I think the, some of the folks from Shut Up and Sit Down. That was just, yeah, so an absolute blast. And literally everyone, I can't remember any person that I met via net-related stuff during my trip in North America who wasn't lovely and, and really fantastic to just meet and talk to. And there's kind of like, you know, three reasons I love doing it. It's that I, I get to do this stuff. I love. There's a lot of satisfaction to get from both personally and professionally. And also there's just so many people in this community and this organization who are just delightful and knowing that they're the people that I'm working with or doing this work for. Yeah, it really warms the heart. It, it makes it worth doing uh, even when it is, you know, difficult or stressful or harder than it might otherwise have to be. And then also a really big shout out to uh, my uh, longtime mentor and really close friend, uh, Anthony Sweet. Um, he's a, you know, another uh, games writer and designer here in Perth, uh, who also, you know, used to play Nibon for a long time. And you know, without you know, his continued support and, and mentorship and everything, I wouldn't have even joined uh, Null Signal in the first place. You know, become the kind of person I am now. So uh, I don't know if you'll ever even hear this, but I don't want to say that anyway. So those are all my shoutouts. Thanks again for coming on, Morgan. Thank you. And once again, thank you very much for having me. It was it was a real pleasure. We've been talking about the visuals. We've been talking about the narrative. That's all super cool stuff. We're going to talk about some additional super cool stuff, though, and that is the actual text on these cards. For that, we have brought in an expert on the text on Netrunner cards. I would say the <laughs> foremost expert on the text on Netrunner cards in the game right now. Josh, do you want to do a quick introduction of our special guest? Well, I suppose if I have to do another one of these, I will <laughs> this, go ahead and This do is that. only your third today. How dare you put these all off on me? Uh, no, actually, I, I, I'm perfectly fine doing this. This person is a master extraordinaire of the rules, as we know, a 2022 world championship head judge, editor. There seems to be a running theme with members of NSG, but they are aware of many hats, just like the others. Jamie, how the hell are you doing? Hello, uh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're super excited to have you on. I think this is an overdue conversation. Like there is so much interesting stuff with Netrunner rules. And I'm excited to, yeah. to go into that a little bit with these cards. I, I love talking about this stuff and have not really gotten that many opportunities to do a deep dive outside of talking to other folks on the rules team and maybe Noah from Jinteki.net. <laughs> Let's fix that. We're just going to go in the order we've kind of gone for most of these cards already so far. The first one we have to talk about is a card Wait, called... Oh, you're right. This is a segment. We need to get a segment. Yeah. We've got what, to do what a segment. What segment are we doing for this? So I have an idea. It goes back to another episode that the listeners should check out. When Pants asked, which would win in a fight? Our twisting and turning of the rules or <laughs> oh, like man. the rules team. So this one has to be. It has to be. The Beef Zone. I don't know how we can structure this like the Beef Zone. That's the problem. The Beef Zone is always a which would win yeah. in a fight. 
Well, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Okay, this this week on the beef zone, the scoops zone, I guess we could potentially call it. The first card up is hybrid is that release. The Raisin music. <laughs> this is a card called hybrid release. This is a Genteki agenda subtype expansion. It is a 2-1, so two requirement and one point. And the card text is, when you score this agenda, you may install one face-down card from archives. What's going on with this card? Are there any interesting discussions to have about anything that this card brings to the front? I don't know if we've had an effect that specifically lets you install a face-down card before. Yeah. But it shouldn't be surprising because the the design team has been playing with the face-down cards matter design Mm -hmm. space since System Gateway. So I certainly was was never shocked to see this effect. But, you know, it works. It's not something Mm -hmm. that needed any rule support. Is there anything special about installing a face-down card? I mean, you just have to follow the rules. Okay. In the Midnight Sun comp rules update, we did add some detail about install effects that have like requirements on them, mostly for things like op where, okay, you're getting an install that has to be a card of a particular res cost. And if for some reason you can't res it, you need to be, you still need to reveal it to show that you've met that requirement. And what requirements does that apply to? Like the card type, you never have to reveal a card to prove that it is the right card type to go in that spot because that mm. would kind of break the game i'll install this face down ice but now i have to like give you a free deuces to, to prove that it's ice yeah no yeah. that wouldn't that wouldn't make any sense the fact that a card is coming from face down archives is not something that that is hidden information cool you mentioned that they started playing with face down cards around system gateway so even though this might not be new was there anything that had to be built into the rules once the mm. team started playing around with face down so it was certainly defined how face down cards in archives works because that's been a part of the game for a long time and in fact we've had in Industrial genomics back in Lunar Cycle did care about that. So we didn't need any new infrastructure that wasn't already there. What we did do in CR 1.5 is revise all of the rules for breaching and accessing. And and so Mm. that helps just in terms of clarifying where the flip cards face up step happens and gradually as we work on the rules, try to make things more clear and, and comprehensive. Now I'm realizing, I'm not sure I actually know the rules about when exactly do cards get flipped face up? That's a great question. Let's pull up the CR. We got the CR <laughs> search in action. I'm, I'm not even going to search. I'm just going to scroll because I know about where things are. <laughs> That's the level of mastery you only get by looking through a document enough times. No, yeah. no, nah, nah, I. Well, it, I'm, it's I'm actually looking it. at my working draft at the working draft that the rules team has for the, the next version. Not that Ooh. there are a lot of changes. Section 7.5, steps of breaching a server. 7.5.1 is breaching the server formally begins. Conditions related to breaching the server are met. So Mm -hmm. after that would be when your multi-axis effects tend to trigger. 7.5.2 is if the breach server is archives, turn all cards in the the corpse discard pile face up. After that, you determine how many cards you get out of HQ R&D, and then you start choosing candidates to access and either accessing them or applying replacement effects or whatever until you're done. And then that's the breach. One of the things that got changed, I guess, with respect to face down cards in the big CR 1.5 overhaul, the FFG breach rules had a global fixed number of accesses that you could do. And so if a card got added to archives in the middle of breaching archives, you would no longer be able to access all the cards in archives. Now, you don't have to keep track of that. The only places where there's a a limit 
to how many accesses you get is in R&D and in HQ. And if more cards show up in the root, there's still new cards that you get to access from the root. New cards show up in archives, you get to access them from archives. But if cards are added to archives face down in the middle of breaching archives, you'll get to access them, but they will stay face down because you already got past the step where you flip them face up. That's actually really cool. But yeah, that would work if there's a bacterial in archives that who knows what could happen. All kinds of nonsense can happen. Mm. When I'm doing rules work, I need to sort of construct weird situations to be able to talk about, okay, what is this corner case? How can we yeah. describe a corner case that we need to handle in a way that's not going to totally lose everybody before we even get to the part that we're trying to work on? And my favorite card in the game is ganked because it makes it so much easier to construct corner cases. You don't longer have to do like Archangel plus Marcus Batty plus all this nonsense. It's just, okay, somebody acts as a ganked. There's an encounter in the middle of a breach. Some weird thing's going to happen. It's much easier. You can probably make whatever happen and yeah. there can be face downs in archives in the okay. middle of your breach. Okay. Say, I'm going to access this agenda and then the upgrade and then all these other cards in archives. And then what? There's another card. Okay, I'll access that too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The step that happens before the turn face up is triggering when the server's breached effects, right? So theoretically, if there was a corp card that ended the run once the server was breached, the cards wouldn't go face up. I don't think we would ever print a card like that. Mm, I think that would be really strange because it's right after the run successful. Giordano Memorial Field is already a weird card with weird timing that exists that, that basically does that thing. And second of all, generally, we like to keep things to a particular set of trigger conditions Mm -hmm. so that players sort of know what to expect from the flow of the game. And so we don't generally do Giordano timing if they're going to like affect the outcome of the run. There could certainly be corp successful run triggers that do something else. So what I'm hearing you say is if I want the runner to have successful runs against my archives, but I don't want them to turn the cards face up, I should run Girodano Memorial Field. Yes. That's an interesting strategy. (laughs) If you can psych someone out with a weird line, that's totally legit. (laughs) Is there anything special about the expansion subtype on this agenda? So the expansion subtype is a... A non-functional subtype. There are no Mm. cards in the game that care about that subtype. But what I can say, and you're right that we're definitely going to be talking more about subtypes, is that Morgan, the narrative director, uh, and I go through each set toward the end of the development and rules text writing process. And while Mm. the names and flavor text is still going on, we talk about what subtypes each card should have. Do we want to add new subtypes? Uh, Agenda subtypes in particular are one of the cases where it's like, all right, well, what feels right? What sort of conceptually matches the right flavor? Because there's so rarely functional implications of agenda subtypes. The expansion subtype is generally new corporate projects or acquisitions as opposed to initiative, which is more of a public facing thing. So the corp is showing Mm -hmm. off, here's some exciting thing we want to advertise or whatever. The fact that so few cards care about the subtype of an agenda, it's its actually, it's interesting that any do, but so few do. It's kind of a weird thing from a design perspective. The rules don't care whether they've been used functionally mm-hmm. or not before. You can refer to a subtype and it works. Mm-hmm. But what are the implications of suddenly deciding that any Gmod identity... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah. yeah. Okay. But that's a design and balance challenge more than a rules challenge. <laughs> 
I will also say that there is one older card, not in standard anymore, so it's not going to be a big deal, mm-hmm. getting an update in the associated card text updates release Ooh. to have the subtype that is cared about instead of a subtype that is not really used and is going to continue to not be used. And it's just we're getting rid of it. I actually don't know what this is. We leave this as an exercise to the listener. Figure out what the hidden card is. I'd like to move on to the next card, Dr. Vientian Keeling. This is a Genteki asset, subtype academic. This is a unique asset, three res, four influence, four trash cost. The card text is, when you res this asset and when your turn begins, place one power counter on this asset. The runner gets minus one maximum hand size for each hosted power counter. The question that I immediately started asking myself when I saw this card, when does the runner care about max hand size? It's very rare that they care at any other time than their discard step at the beginning mm-hmm. of the discard phase or in you know planning around how many cards to have as they get closer to it. There is, it's a Polana card from back in Mumbai. Is it called Harvester? Draw cards and then discard down to their hand size. Right. Um, wow. I normally you only existed. care at step 5.7.2a. Um, Do you have that one memorized? Damn. No, I, I pulled it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there are a few yeah. numbers that just come up often mm-hmm. enough that, that yeah. I've gotten to know them. Section 9.1.8 is the rules about when abilities are active, even though the cards they're on are inactive. Primarily carrying at the beginning of the discard phase then. And importantly, the way the turn loop happens, there is a paid ability window before and after each action. And that is a res window. So you can res Dr. Keeling after the runner's last action is finished when they have no more remaining clicks, and then they will go right into their discard step. A nice surprise minus one hand size. Similar to how Chairman Hero used to be, though. Obviously, Chairman Hero was minus two, but didn't grow in the way that Vientan Keeling does. That is awesome. And also, you don't have the risk here of if they deal with the problem, they get two points. Right, right. You you, you don't lose the game for having Dr. Keeling in your deck. That builds up quickly. It's two counters once the corpse turn begins. This is a must trash card for sure. You can't leave it that long. Also, an important reminder that you don't flatline for negative hand size except in your discard step. Dr. Keeling goes up to six counters and then you trash her on your next turn before you hit your discard step, you're fine. And the turn where she's at five counters and you have exactly zero hand size, you're probably not fine, but you're but you're not flatlined. Maybe you'll top deck the pinhole. <laughs> oh, rough. So when we're tracking things that are adjusting numbers, is the standard starting to become that we use power counters for that? I think it's important for the game state to be clear. Mm -hmm. And the more things that you have to keep track of that are not physically present, the harder it gets to understand what's going on. So, you know, we do have some recent cards like Trieste, not marked by a counter or anything. But particularly when like something's going to be changing frequently, it's a scaling effect. We want to use some kind of counter to make sure that it's clear, especially corpse side where they don't have a lot of functional implications. (laughs) I'm hearing that Bushi should make a new counter, though. It's Um, just Pincel's face. Because I have you on here now, and and I've wondered this about corp cards that use power counters, can the runner charge these things? Not that you would really ever want to, but... 
I'm actually not sure if the rules allow for an effect that would let you charge a corp card, but all the charge effects that actually exist say charge one of your installed cards, mm. except for rigging up, which charges that specific card. The only one that I can think of that you would potentially want to do that to is like Lady Liberty, get it out of a certain range or something. But again, Ooh. there's not a card that actually lets you do that. Morgan and I have been talking about people types. Sysop, Executive, Clones and Biroids, and we have Character. There's always yeah. been a bit of a contention, even just between William Morgan, but I think just in sort of the community understanding of what that subtype means, people disagree. Because some people see it as, a, as just a catch-all. I've always seen it, keeping in mind that it was introduced in Data and Destiny. Willie Lockwell, the news anchor, and Shannon Clare, who is some other Indian personality. I always saw it as not just a character in the Netrunner setting, but a character diegetically, like a persona yeah, yeah. for some kind mm -hmm. of media or something. And so, like, Zealous Judge is a character because it's like a TV judge. Oh. Right? Oh, interesting. Oh, okay. That's I not the way I thought of it. Together. Maybe that's why I didn't like it. Huh. Yeah, for it doesn't sure. explicitly tell you anywhere, I don't think, like what's going on with Zealous Judge. Yeah. But that's always how I've interpreted it. That makes the theming of that card so good, in my opinion. Imagine you're being brought up on hacker charges and they're like, yeah, you're on Judge Judy. You're so <laughs> fucked. You actually fucking like flipped my idea of the subtype. I hated it because it wasn't like it was it, it seemed too vague. I'm glad I convinced Morgan to add a subtype for this one. <laughs> Your reasoning on character actually gets me, though. Like, yeah, fuck. That was the other option for Dr. Keeling, obviously, was mm -hmm. was the mm -hmm. so-called catch-all, which I never liked. Mm -hmm. Morgan had kind of mixed feelings, and we ended up deciding that, yeah, you know, how many research agendas are there? Corps do a lot of this kind of mm -hmm. science stuff. I mean, literally, so, one of their services, R&D. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a big part yeah. of what corps are about. So they should have more, not in the subtype character sense, but in the, the game sense, they should have more characters serving this kind of role. Creating a subtype for that made a lot of sense. Runner what, cards will not be getting the subtype. Haley doesn't get retroactive academic subtype. The professor fans weeping when they hear this. So Reaper function, this is an asset subtype hostile. It is a three cost to res, two influence, two trash cost. And the card text is, when your turn begins, you may trash this asset to do two net damage. I'm a big fan of this card. Pretty scary. When do I have to have this res to actually use this effect? Is this the sort of thing, could I like let my pad campaign tick in, then res this and use this? No. When your turn begins step happens, all of the active abilities that trigger when your turn begins spawn their little instances. And then we go into a reaction window and you point at them one by one and they resolve. But you can't add anything new to the reaction window once you start that process. If you sell something to Swagador Excavator and you op it into Rashida, yeah. you can't get Rashida that turn. Even though the Rashida is res now, she wasn't there in time to jump on the, the reaction window train to resolve in that window. Rashida, just because that does gain you three bucks, that's a, that's a good interaction to know. Like You can't Reaper function from zero if you have a Rashida. This one's pretty straight up. You have to pay the three to res this before your turn starts. Mm -hmm. And when your turn starts, it works like other turn starts abilities. It just is a pretty nasty one. I'm just now I, realizing... I do always like to remind people that there is a paid ability window right before the end of each turn after mm. the discard step. And there's a paid ability window before the beginning of each turn. So it mm. counts as being your turn, but we have 
haven't technically gotten to your turn begins step yet. And mm -hmm. there's a paid ability window. So if it matters for reasons, whether you're resing a card on the runner's turn or the corpse turn, you have usually both options. We have definitely seen that matter in the past with interdiction, um, I think, is the one you can't res on the runner's turn. Yeah. yeah. On that topic, should we preview the final card's text? This is a card called Vampira Nasa. This is an ice subtypes code gate AP. This is a seven res, three influence, four strength ice. And the subroutines are there are four of them. The first is the runner loses two credits. The second is gain two credits. The third is do two net damage. And the fourth is you may draw one or two cards. The way that the final one is worded, that makes it clear that you have the option to draw zero, one, or two. That is correct. That's good. You want, you want that flexibility. There are situations where you don't want to draw any. But, but yeah, everybody asks about that. A bunch of people within Null Signal have been like, is that the way to word it? Should it say up to two? My response is always, sometimes we write draw up to N cards, but I don't like it mm. because draw up to N cards is different from draw up to N cards. Oh God, you're right. Right? You, you don't want, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want someone to misread the card as draw until I have this number of cards. Right. And it's hard when there's a big range of possibilities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But in this case, the one line subroutine, it's noticeable to we who are players that have seen Gatekeeper, other effects that, that use the other style, but it's not that distracting. It avoids that problem. Not that I think it would be a common misconception. It's a low number and it would be pretty, yeah. pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> we try to make things as clear as we can. Yeah, it, it removes the potential ambiguity there, which is definitely nice. This almost feels like a templating change to me. So it says, you may. Gatekeeper doesn't have a you. And then I think there are some other corp cards that say the corp may. FFG was not super consistent about this. They had quite a few cards, corp abilities that say the corp does this, which I've always found to be kind of silly because it's a corp ability. Okay. I think it's pretty core to the game. You need to understand that a runner card ability belongs to the runner. And a corp mm -hmm. card ability belongs to the corp, mm -hmm. just at a fundamental level. I think we have, since we started updating templates back in like Ashes, been moving toward like, okay, subroutines are corp effects and they are addressed to the corp. I think that's the end of the time that we have for the rules discussion here. Thank you so much for coming on and discussing yeah. the rules. Was this a segment? Did, did the segment thing happen? Which segment was this again? This was, uh, some, this was supposed to be some side. kind of versus thing, but I don't oh, think that happened. Oh, right. Um, okay, here. How, how about, all right. Which would win in a fight? Not giving shoutouts while you're on the slums cast or giving shoutouts while you're on the slums cast? Well, nobody listens to slums cast. Oh, oh, shit. Damn. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Burn! Everyone listening to this episode is just like, oh, man. <laughs> it's a draw. <laughs> Even though that's a draw, if would you like to do it anyway? a shout-out in the forests. Yeah, no one's there to listen to it. Did it happen? <laughs> Regardless of the fact that this is just screaming into the void, would you like to give shout-outs anyway? Just the rules team. My team is great. I love working with them. I love working with everybody in Null Signal, including both of you. Thank you. Um, and I will shout out to the other game that I have done a bunch of work on, which is World Breakers, Advent of the Connet. Really cool card game that is on the boat for its timely public release. It's actually ahead of schedule. We're hoping to get people games in their hands next month. It's not too late to pre-order yourself a copy. Send us a link. We'll make sure we include that in the show notes. 
Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm really excited to play with Parhelion. There are so many cool cards coming down the line. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about four of them. And until next time. Take care. And the final conversation we have on this episode today is a conversation with someone on the development team. Josh, you want to go four for four? Introduce our final special guest of the day. I would love to, except unfortunately, I don't know a lot about what they do. So I do know that they're on the dev team. I do know that they go by the handle Bilby. And I do know that they have had a hand in sets in the future and sets past and sets present, like we're about to talk to. Bilby, how the fuck are you doing? I'm great. I'm really excited about Jinteki and Netrunner as a whole. Everything you just said is true. I can confirm. Before we get into it and before we put a segment, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? What sets have yeah. you worked on? And like, so I joined the development team tail end of working on system gateway. Mm. So I've been working on the development team for like, I guess it's been like almost three years, which is absolutely wild to actually think about. It does not feel like that long. I have seen Borealis through from its first little baby steps to being out mm. the door, which is wow. really, really exciting. I'm super proud of it. And I think everyone who worked on it, like on all fronts, did such a good job. It's kind of like mind blowing to me, which also <laughs> is putting a, a big standard to live up to for future sets. But I think we're going to rise to the challenge. Keep it going. I think it's good to set a high standard. It's 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 a good reminder of like, this is why people play the game. This is why we keep yeah. coming back to it. And let's just make some more kick-ass cards. Should we talk yes. about these in particular? Let us see. We could always do well, Alchemist so Memship. No. No. <laughs> Damn it. Bad pants. You can't blame me for trying again. Well, let's see. So it's about dev. It's about adjusting numbers. Mm -hmm. It's about how things interact in the meta and how we think we're going to shape the game. Currently, we're all being thrown under the boat. So we've got to do Fuck Shaper, right? Oh, my God. I'm, I agree. <laughs> Shaper. Yeah! All right. This evening on the Fuck Shaper segment, you're going to talk about absolutely nothing related to Shaper. We're going to talk about Kentucky carts. The same ones that we've been talking about the rest of the episodes. So. See, we're not going to be talking about Shaper. Yeah. So therefore, fuck Shaper. Why are we not talking about Shaper? Because fuck them. That's why. All right. Cool. <laughs> It's not my uh, favorite faction or anything. I, so, sorry. They just won worlds. It's fine. Yeah, no, they're fine. They're actually <laughs> good is... now. The fact that Shaper yeah. is good now um, legitimately makes me like it less as a faction. Yeah. Oh, my God. You're a Shaper hipster. Oh, my God. Shaper's where I go to play bad decks. And now they're good. I like Shaper like, well, before it was cool. <laughs> if I wanted to play really good decks, I'll play Krim or Anarch. No, I'm mostly kidding. I'm very happy that Shaper's kicking ass right now. By the but way, yeah, fuck yeah. don't tell anybody this. The fuck Shaper segment is totally tongue in cheek. Like we don't actually okay. like hate yeah. Shaper that much. Okay. I mean, I mean we only I, hated I, I a little bit. I actually played Latin no. servers for the record. <laughs> oh wow, you played Shaper? Cut the feet. 
No, no, I played <laughs> I played green. I didn't play shaper. We talked about this with Ben. A slight reprieve. No shaper, all Jinteki. The first card we have to talk about is hybrid release. That's the Jinteki 2-1 that lets yes. you install a face down from archives. Bilby, what do yeah. you think about this 2-1? I think it's a 2-1. So the floor for how good it is is very high just by mm-hmm. default. Like a blank 2-1 is kind of a good card in almost every faction or yeah. most decks, you know? Being able to score a point out of hand is extremely valuable. This is sort of a pair with Elevagar Bifurcation mm-hmm. in HB, mm-hmm. which is basically two ones with a effect that sometimes can be quite good and sometimes is of marginal utility, which mm-hmm. I think is a good place for a two one to be. Maybe Hostile Takeover is a little too good. I mean, obviously it's very good. Getting seven credits and scoring a point is awesome and probably a bad pub playing that way isn't going to bite you in the ass too hard because you're going to win the game really fast. Uh, and then this is also continuing to flesh out the face downs and archives theme that mm-hmm. has been building up for Jinteki as part of their like color pie, as you might call it. I don't know where this one's going to end up necessarily, mm-hmm. but uh, I do have an interesting multiple of these cards that we have. Literally not a single thing changed about them for the entire wow. development process. And this is one of those cards. That's something that happens every once in a while that's just so nice is that we get the initial prototype and basically everyone just goes like, yeah, it's perfect. (laughs) And all the (laughs) playtesters agree and it just never changes. And so this is one of those cards like it was born into the world perfect and beautiful and never changed. It seems like it definitely wasn't a card that like you heard horror stories about from playtesting or anything like that. Did you hear any interesting plays with it, though? Anything that really stuck out about this 2-1? I think it's really flexible because mm-hmm. of its ability. It's rare that you're going to have like a huge blowout with this ability, I think. But you can you can do obviously a ton of cool stuff. There's a lot of like archives manipulation that Chiteki's been getting with stuff like Moonpool, Hansei Review, Anoetic mm-hmm. Void, of course, the gateway stuff. Being able to use those cards as fuel for Moonpool or Anoetic Void and then score your 2-1 later and get one of those cards back is just like a cool tempo play. Another thing that kind of says to the runner, if you're playing against the techie, maybe you actually do have to run archives before the last click of the game. Yeah, which I think is really fun. And I'm excited to see how these new cards sort of bolster that idea. I think it's a really something that I'm really happy that we've introduced to Jinteki as a faction. I think it really suits their personality. I've got this big pile of mysteries. Anything yeah. can come out if you're not careful. <laughs> One of the most important things, as you pointed out, like this is a 2-1. It's a 2-1 that has some marginal upside, potentially actually pretty good upside, but just generally it being a 2-1, Jinteki having a 2-1 that's playable. Do you think that that's a fundamental change or do you think that that's like, yeah, this is a nice little change that's going to be a little bit of a buff for a few decks? I think it's really good for PE to have a 2-1 because you can do a damage whenever you want to. Like people are playing Kusanagi right now yeah, because it's just an agenda. I think that will probably turn out pretty good for PE. Hopefully it's really good for restoring humanity as well, just for that face down an archives package. Restoring humanity is a 40-15, so you can a seven agenda suite, right? Three pointers and a 15 minutes thing that yeah, like NBN can I do or uh, you know, swap out, like have one hybrid release and a longevity serum and then five yeah. threes out of restoring humanity. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah glacier type deck this is also good 
get that one last point out of hand. Yeah. So you said that this was birthed perfect from the uh, the, the womb, as it were. <laughs> from the moon pool, so, as it were. Yeah. From, yeah. from the moon pool. When it comes to dev, was there testing on that? Was there at any point like during the testing cycle where you thought you might have to push it or tone it down or something like that? It's sort of the kind of card where there's not really anything you can change about it without totally mm. changing the card. If okay. it's a three one, absolutely different card. If it installs any card from archives, totally different card. If it adds like a card to HQ, that's a totally different card. It's like such a simple card that there's not much you can change about it. And it also just so happens to be what we think is a very balanced card. Came in, everyone said, this, this looks pretty good. Yeah, let's test it. And then people played with it and no one ever showed us that it needed to change at all. <laughs> no yeah. one ever complained. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Everyone's just like, yeah, Jinteki 2-1. It's kind of good. It'll be useful in a lot of different decks. Thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, I mean it's, sometimes it's that easy, I guess. In that case, let's move on to the narrative paired card here, Dr. Vienti on Keeling. What do you think about Dr. Keeling? Do you think that this is a card we're going to see a lot of? That is a great question. There was a lot of attention on this card throughout the whole mm -hmm. playtesting process because it is a pretty intense effect, just like nudging the numbers up and down to get it in the right place. And yeah, obviously the hope is always that we got it right, but mm -hmm. Pobody's nerfed, as they say. The intent is that it's an asset that applies pressure in the form mm -hmm. of cards. Either you're going to trade tempo with the runner favorably because they have to trash it or else they die. It's a little bit like the Jinteki Super Deep Borehole in that way. We want it to be good. We don't want it to be really oppressive where like yeah. the corp reses it and then you just kind of like go, oh, God damn it. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you, so, you don't want it to be the 3x pinhole threading meta. An interesting thing that happens to your brain, at least mine, <laughs> when you've been working on Netrunner dev for three years is that res costs and trash costs sort of each have their own little personality. So a trash cost of four is like five is the trash cost where you go, oh, God damn it. Three <laughs> is the one where you go, oh, that's no problem. Uh, <laughs> and four yeah. is the one where you go like, I have ah. to think about this. <laughs> Pad campaign costing four to trash is sort of like the basis for that, oh, I guess, to me. Yeah. If pad campaign costs three to trash, those things would be getting shot down left and right. Yeah. If they cost five to trash, you would never, ever trash it, probably. And so four is like the sweet spot for that. And so that's huh. the sensible place for this to land. I hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another four that I see on the card that I actually did want to ask you about was the influence. This is four influence. Mm, yeah. Um, I'm curious if that came out of testing or if that was kind of, this is a very Jinteki card, so we're going to make it hard to splash. Yeah. Those are sort of the two reasons to decide on an influence value. Flavor reasons and balance reasons. Balance reasons is like, is there a deck where you can like really exploit importing this card? And then flavor reasons is like, if a card is very Jinteki, it'll probably be more influence just yeah. because it makes it feel more like a signature card for that faction. This is the case where it's a very Jinteki card. Even if for balance reasons, it could be one influence. I don't think it would be because yeah. it's a Jinteki card. 
when something's five influence, that's sort of the tell that it's a balance consideration, typically. <laughs> hippo is five influence for Oh a my reason. god. Imagine if yeah, imagine if you could um, import three hippo and still have six influence left over. That'd yeah. be insane. Yeah. Like oh. I can't tell you the number of times I sit down to build the deck and go like, maybe I'll import hippo and then remember that's five influence and be like, yeah. oh yeah, that's why I can't build this deck. <laughs> that was a thing that I ran into on Deep Dive when I was thinking about, okay, what weird max deck do I want to build? Oh God, five influence? It's both in that case, I think. Yeah. Like it's a super shaper card. Wait, hold this is fuck shaper. We can't talk about this. <laughs> you got it. Okay. Yep. That, that one's on me. I'm gonna cut the feet on myself. No, it's like uh yeah, that one's a balance reason and a flavor reason. Like it's super shaper and also like a really powerful card that you need to think about importing into other decks. Tying into the next card, part of the design intent for a lot of the Jinteki cards that we're doing is trying to avoid the thousand cuts or grinder kind of Jinteki, where you just like ping a card every once in a while. A lot of people think it's really annoying. Obviously, it's all subjective. And instead, lean to a style of Jinteki where you can assemble a board that lets you do big spikes of damage which depending on who you ask is more fun because it makes the game end when you do smart, cool plays, <laughs> you win <Yeah. laughs> instead of doing that. And then the game ends many turns later. It certainly seems to be how our balance team works. It's yeah. nice for the game to end when the game ends. And I yeah. think that's a totally cool philosophy to take. I also don't necessarily hardline disagree with anyone who likes grinder stuff. It's, it's a valid way I to do. game in Netrunner. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't think you're so. entitled to that position. <laughs> you're entitled to feel that other people are not entitled to their Listen. position on that. <laughs> Listen, I, in Magic the Gathering, am a prison player. Yeah. And in Netrunner, I still say fuck grinder. That, well, that's an that interesting that tell you something. That does tell me something. <laughs> I should tell you something. So, I mean, yeah, when this, you're playing um, MTG, you're all in prison because you only get to draw one card a turn. So, grinder <laughs> is unpleasant to play, let alone play against. Like, and they true, did yeah. that to themselves. You know, one of the things going back to uh, Dr. Keeling that I find interesting if they do have five in hand after their last click, it is going to ping one card. They yeah. are probably not going to let it live. So it's going to cost them four. Its res cost is only three. If they don't let it live, it's one card and four credits, which for three credits and a click on my turn actually seems pretty balanced. Um, yeah. Plus, it's also draining a run from them. If it was two or one, it's a snap res for me every time. At three, I'm actually kind of thinking about it's more game state dependent. Three to res is like the four to trash where it's the <laughs> number where it's the most dynamic based on the game state. Speaking of the like grinder versus spikes of damage, this sort of on its face might appear kind of grindery because it's like doing mm. one quote unquote damage every turn. The important thing is that it's not actually doing damage. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Reducing your hand size, which does not remove cards, except for like the first, when you res it, if they have five cards in hand, it does a damage kind of. Then from that point on, they can just not have too many cards in their hand until they mm -hmm. trash it. And that does not remove the number of cards from the game. You can't yeah. do the like, yeah. get rid of all the cards and then score oboe with this. 
Instead, the hope is that this stays live long enough that you can set up a spike of damage that kills them because they're softened up by the, the reduced hand size, basically. It reminds me a lot of the enforced curfews and the chairman heroes and the old IG decks, like the IG 49 style that mm -hmm. was actually trying to kill you with a Ronin rather than just grinding you out of the game. Right. I say right, but actually that was sort of before my time as a Netrunner player. We've been alluding to yes. Reaper Function this whole time. We, we already know what Reaper Function does. Let's talk yeah. about Reaper Function. A another one that's in that three zone of, you really are thinking about that res. Absolutely. This seems like a pretty good way to set up spikes of damage. Yeah, so these are sort of the two cards that form that plan that I've been talking about. You reduce the hand size with healing, and then you have a couple of these, one, one or two or three of these on the table if you're feeling saucy, and then you set them off and probably win. Three res cost is, yeah, it's the sweet spot res cost for a powerful effect that's not unplayable and is also not a snap res. The trash cost of two is like you are paying basically like soft central servers to have mm -hmm. this card because once it's installed it should be easy to trash the game you're playing is like find the reaper function like if it costs like four to trash that would be an abomination because you yeah, find it and go like gross. oh i found yeah. the reaper function thank god oh now i have to pay four credits so <laughs> the low trash cost is like natural for this kind of card playing the shell game thing basically making the runner think about where the cards might be as like a deck building cost kind of you have a soft r d you have these cards that cost only two to trash I think the three res cost is really, you see this card and you think, oh, I have three of these set up. If there's no stone ship, steel skin or anything like that, that's just game. Yeah. I mean, you do have to have all three Reaper functions survive for a turn at least. Yeah. And you also have to pay nine. That's a pretty tall order. Paying three is not very much. Paying six is a lot. Paying nine is a lot, a lot. A um, lot. You could have resed an Anansi for less right. than that. <laughs> right. Typically, what will probably happen is you like compress the runner with a number of other cards like Keeling or if you're PE, maybe they like steal stuff and take a ping mm -hmm. of damage or you have like House of Knives or whatever. And then Reaper function is you have like one of them that does the killing blow. Or it sets you up to get a PE damage with blood in the water or something. Right. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. It also sets up beautifully for blood in the water. The one situation where the res cost is sort of an advantage for you is bladder wart from mid. Oh, true. So oh, that's a really good point. Res the reaper function to duck <laughs> under the bladder wart threshold, and then you get uh -huh. bladder wart damage as well. Uh, that's pretty sick. That could be fun. Who who needs to make the runner access a snare? Just deal three. Blood in the water is actually really sick with this. Like it's yeah. a very very good. Yeah. It's like a biotic with it. Yeah, that's this, really this has cool. Some, this actually, has some really cool synergies across the set. It potentially, I don't know, maybe it makes it harder for you to regenesis things out because there's even more incentive to check your face down remotes, but that just makes your snares better. Yeah. This is another one like hybrid release did not change a single thing about it from the first prototype. Wow. Uh, so it, it sounds like during testing it, it was right where people thought it should be. People said, yep, this is a cool card. It does the thing we want it to do for Jinteki. Mm. The numbers are just very sensible. There's nothing to change about it. Three damage would be horrific. One damage would be terrible. Different <laughs> numbers on the res or trash would not make sense. So made perfect sense from the get-go. Do you see this going out of faction? Because like one of the things that we saw was the bladder wart CTM deck. 
are you sensing a world at all? Because it's two influence where this might go in a CTM deck of some sort. That is an interesting question. I don't think you would play this in CTM. I'm not like a deck building mastermind, but I don't think you would have a reason to play this in CTM unless you're trying to kill with Bladderworts. And then you also have to play Bladderworts, another six that's, influence. That's all your influence, yeah. Yes, and then that's 12 influence tied up in these cards. Maybe, but then if you're doing that, probably just want to play PE if you're trying to kill. I don't know if this card's going to be spoiled yet. I assume it is because it's an ID, but Josh, I'm thinking of this out of Thule. Sick. Thule. Oh, fuck. Yeah. yeah. It's Argus, oh. except you also have the Reaper function threat. That's <laughs> kind of evil. I, I like That's it. That's pretty sick. Yeah. You can ice these too. Oh, you could do like Thule fully op. I'm putting Reapers oh. in my remotes and like you got to go after these with ice over top of them. You could. Oh, you could. Fully op's a little harder because you actually have to spend all the clicks to do it, but... Oh, wow. Reaper Asa, though. <laughs> you could do that. You know, you do want your servers doing things. Kind of gross. I don't know. This, right, this is a cool card. This is a cool card that I think it's, it's, it's splashable. Reaper it's good function neuro spike. Yeah. It's good that it's splashable. I'm glad that it's too influenced to splash it so it isn't. Oh, yeah, yeah. I have my Reaper function package and now also 12 more influence. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One influence is sort of for like tech cards or like really niche mm. cards generally. And then two is like asking the players figure something cool out with this. Like it's not a balance concern for us that this could be splash out of faction. We actually think it would be really awesome if yeah. you use this in a different faction. Like you just can't have everything. It. Yeah, you can't yeah. have everything, but it's encouraging like deck building creativity. Huh. So yeah, mm. I would love to see someone figure out a good deck where you import this into a different faction. That's a very intriguing <laughs> idea. I guess we'll find out what three influence is because the, the next one, Vampira Nasa, is a three influence. What do you think about the squid? So this card is basically a new big ice for Jinteki, which they're sort of the home of big mean ice mm -hmm. traditionally. This is the new card in that lineage. And the idea of this card is that it's a vampire and it's stealing stuff. So you have the mm -hmm. two pairs of subroutines, you drain two credits and you drain two cards, basically. Yeah. Um, I love the theme on it, too, because the fact that it's yeah. 4x2, you got the eight legs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. You're one step ahead of us on that one. <laughs> I, I, I did write the Arbory for it, so. Oh, okay, tight. Yeah. yeah. This is a nasty ice to run into. Yes. I think the, the obvious point of comparison is something like a DNA tracker. What do you think about that comparison? I think that's a very apt comparison. It lines up pretty directly, like it's damage, mm. it's credits. The main difference is that as a face check, this also sort of refunds the corp in a way that DNA Tracker doesn't. It only costs five and you get to draw some cards. And then the damage is like not as bad to the runner. So slightly shifted away from DNA Tracker in that way. The other three cards, well, two of them did not change at all. Keeling changed a little bit. This one used to have a wild ability that Ooh. ended up getting cut. Um, you know what I find interesting about this card is actually how tuned the numbers are on it. Seven is not a res cost you arrive at just naturally in dev and in your head. Definitely a negotiated res cost, in my opinion. Here. Yeah, in the same way we talked about what four trash represents for an asset or three res, does seven have a special meaning to you? Seven has an extremely special meaning. Seven is the number that you really wish was eight or six. 
<laughs> but it just can't be. Seven is the number where you go, oh, I wish it could be eight or six, but I guess it has to be seven. Seven is the correct number, but you're not necessarily happy about it. A lot of the development process is actually striking a balance between elegance and numerical correctness. I think seven is sometimes an inelegant number. Having a round number is just like nicer feeling generally. Mm. You've got the eight arms. You've got the eight res cost. How cool would that be? But I imagine it would be really bad if it were eight. Like eight is just, it's a little too expensive. And then six is like crazy good. Yeah, because it's got four subs. Potentially (laughs) better than Fairchild three levels of efficiency at six. So (laughs) it just has to be seven, basically. And you just go, that's that's the number. Seven also makes an interesting numerical appearance in Big Deal. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) seventeen. Like... That card is like, it could cost 15, but 15 is actually kind of more achievable in a significant way than 17. Yeah. And then 20 is too much. Like it would be awesome if it cost 20. Somebody did the math on this about like three biotics and they're like, well, actually 18 (laughs) is too much. Exactly. Even though it's... It's like a discount off of triple biotic five, three, 18 is still too much because it's only like one credit discount. So they're like, yeah, you know, 17 17 is the perfect number. Numerically correct number and aesthetically the absolutely worst number. I kind of like that it's prime. (laughs) Yeah. Prime numbers seven as well tend to creep up in this way where you just settle on them for whatever reason. Is big deal the most expensive card in the game? Yes. Wait, it's no. Uh, right. Monolith is 18, right? Oh, you're right. Yeah. Oh, Monolith, Monolith. is 18. Okay. Okay. God. There's yeah, a reason we 18. only ever installed that with emergent creativity. Yeah. Yeah. And it was actually <laughs> good in that tech too. <laughs> so costs aside, the thing I find most interesting about this card is, is actually the strength. Four, it's like achievable by most, especially shaper breakers, but fuck shaper. I was looking at this card being like straight better than DNA tracker. And then I started thinking about eternal and I'm like, oh, in eternal, this card is actually kind of bad. If I'm already going to install like an ice carver in a yog and, and maybe I'm not. In eternal, are credits. you ever raising an ice that costs anything more than like four? Probably not. In any I deck? mean, you're probably more focused on like combo and like fast advance and stuff. Yeah. Yogg plus an ice carver gets past this for nothing. It's like really an interesting part of the card that is sort of a product of its meta too. Is ice thaw still a thing? Is ice thaw still a thing? Uh, Yes, it is still a thing for sure. Mm. I do think you might look at this ice and feel it's a little bit underpowered, but that is deliberate like we're not gonna make another anansi the four strength is a big part of that is a buzzsaw you you don't want like buzzsaw to break this for two obviously (laughs) four strength is sort of out of the like mimic buzzsaw cleaver range it's the strength where you have to like work a little bit to get to strength you know versus dna tracker six is like very very high strength it's like a slightly gentler dna tracker for both the corp and the runner i guess you could say because of the credit gain, it's like way more of a mid-range ice than mm-hmm. you might think just looking at seven as a res cost. It's really comparing like five as a res cost to eight on DNA tracker, a really significant difference. More of a like heavy middle weight kind of ice than huge Jinteki ice necessarily. How, how efficient is Blork on this actually? 
It's six yeah. unless you want two to fire. Letting two fire on this is like pick. You, you can do it, but you're least. not happy about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it costs five and the corp gains two in a pinch. Right. Or Just the ability costs... to like pick what yeah. you want to happen yeah. makes Black Orchestra not so bad for this. A lot of the power of this card, I think, is located in that draw subroutine. That really plays into, even if this is a large ice with a lot of subs that you want to fire, it still kind of plays into that ice thaw, even apart from just the numbers, in that a lot of the power isn't the ice does terrible things to you. It's the ice helps me enact the rest of my game plan. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Drawing cards mm -hmm. has become increasingly important for Jinteki mm -hmm. because now you have really powerful effects that are tied to spending cards from your hand, like Hansei yeah. Review, Moon yeah. Pool, and Anoetic Void. Being able to draw cards off of a nice like this on a subroutine oh, wow. that you kind of expect is going to fire kind of often. If like the runner lets subs go, that might be the one that fires. That actually can mm -hmm. be pretty beneficial for Jinteki. The Void interaction. Yeah, the, the, the exact like, two and two that's really nice you could get the two yeah. cards off of this that lets you fire for void potentially so this has a lot of subroutines we don't often see four there are subroutines on here where if i don't want to break all four because four is a fuck load none of them on their own are damaging enough that i care that much about them firing when ice actually gets to fire its subs that's pretty interesting to me as long as it's not just like in the run yeah, this ice easily could have been two subroutines. Runner loses two, you gain two, and then do two net, draw two cards. It would have fit the brief for the card, I guess, basically. Mm. But yeah, it was really deliberate to split it up into four subroutines, kind of for the reason that you're getting at, where each one independently is not a huge deal. And there's going to be situations where thinking about which subs are going to get broken or fire are going to have interesting impacts on the rest of the game. I think that that's one of the cool things. It's obviously a much more pushed card, but Fairchild 3 has a similar effect where yeah, you're totally. often letting one of those subs fire because it's yeah. often much easier to break two of them than it is to break three. It is very similar in that way. Yeah. I have to ask, so when major surgery needs to be done for a card, how does that work? I'm really terribly interested in that. Are you discussing that just in dev on the, the levers you're going to press? Or does dev go back to the design? And is there a big discussion and collaboration between the departments? Both of those things can happen depending mm -hmm. on the situation. There's sort of a threshold where if our concerns like reach that threshold for a card or for a set of cards, then we go have a meeting with the design team and say like, these things need to be reworked significantly. There's not like a hard rule about when that happens necessarily. I guess generally, if we feel like we can keep the spirit of the card intact, then we have leeway to change it however we see fit, which can include like more major design changes or just number tweaks. But if a card comes up where we're like, this card fundamentally isn't working or this whole like cycle of cards fundamentally isn't working, then we'll go back to design and say like, we got to rework this one. And then that's when mm -hmm. they will brainstorm and come up with an actual like totally new thing. As part of that process, does Dev ever suggest any changes to the cards? Yeah, 100%. Since we're working really closely with playtesting and we're seeing like a meta develop, we kind of will sometimes get a sense for something that's missing or like something that needs to change. And we can either like try to come up with 
a design solution for that ourselves, or we can take that information and, and pass it back to design the design team. All of us on dev also are designers pretty often, mm -hmm. sometimes invent new cards to like fill gaps in the set or just like in a ship of Theseus kind of way, a card will like get redesigned piece by piece until it is totally different from the original pitch. But <laughs> none of those changes individually were major redesigns. The card the of, endurance Theseus. of Theseus. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. The endurance of Theseus. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> we're 100% thinking about the whole player base as we're working on the sets. There are always cards that we are working on with kitchen table players in mind. The whole like Timmy Johnny Spike dynamic, we're thinking mm -hmm. about similar things. Netrunner doesn't quite map to that all the way, but it maps to that pretty close. And so we're absolutely thinking about all of the different types of players that are out there when we're working on the cards. Oftentimes we will have a card that we don't have to worry about it being too weak necessarily because we know no matter how we tweak it, someone is going to like absolutely love it. Those are oftentimes like the most fun cards to work on. Such a cool idea that we don't have to worry about the balance necessarily because we just like know people are going to love it kind of no matter mm. where it lands. On the other hand, the playtesting demographic does skew towards tournament players. The hardcore balance stuff should be aimed generally towards the high end of tournaments. I think sometimes that can backfire a little bit where you have a game that's really enjoyable for very high caliber players and is less enjoyable as you like get more towards the casual end of things. Shout out to the um, CTM. Yeah, for, yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And Shit, pants and one again. But I personally always try to keep the entire player base in mind, like very explicitly. And that comes up in our discussions and our work all the time. <laughs> the reason that I think generally you should balance towards the high end of tournament players is because on the kitchen table, people are going to play whatever and you actually like can't balance it because they're not playing the game that you balanced. You know what I mean? And, and in many okay. ways, they're going to balance themselves. Like right, if they exactly. don't have fun playing CTM, they're going to house rule no CTM. Sure. Or like certain cards are not going to feel balanced no matter what to different demographics mm -hmm. of player. There could be a card that is unstoppably good at middle tables or like on the kitchen table that is fair at the top table or vice versa a card mm -hmm. that's like super overpowered at the top tables but in the middle tables people don't really see it that way a card like maybe stone ship chart room mm -hmm. you look at that card if you're like more of a casual player and you're like i can draw two cards whatever but if you're a super high caliber player you look at that and you're like oh my god i can draw two cards whenever i want that mm -hmm. breaks open so much of the game for me you kind of have to balance the game around the high end of play because that's sort of the only meaningful demographic that cares about balance in a way that you can design around. I do have to give one shout out to Dev, though. It is your segment. Yeah. I love that Dev has decided to take risks on numbers. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, that is a good thing to touch on. A key part of the Dev process is we try the most powerful version of a card first. Like mm -hmm. we try the unlimited version first and yep. then we apply restrictions as necessary. I would absolutely, and some people will probably find this 
distasteful maybe, but I would always prefer to print a card that has to get banned than print a card that is never played. Like hmm, I, will, I agree. I will always 100%. err on that side. 100% agree. 100%. Because at least we're going to get this card that like dominates for a little bit and it's yeah. going to be like, whoa, yeah. rather than like, oh, it just it's it's cardboard that goes in my binder. If endurance has to get banned, I still don't think I regret that card at all. Literally, we're all going to remember that for the rest of our lives. Yeah. Like we all went through yeah. the endurance meta together, even if some people thought it like sucked ass. <laughs> <laughs> to like, be clear, it didn't suck ass. Yeah, but I still want the boat to be banned. I loved worlds. Totally, the meta yeah, was. No, great. I really liked the worlds meta. Uh, yeah, I, and I, think, I also understand if it gets banned. So, on the one hand, I think that this is good. I think pushing things is correct, and like not being afraid of printing ban worthy cards is like good. We also don't want to end up in a situation like Magic the Gathering standard, where like people just don't play it because it's like, oh, cool, whatever busted ass card you printed is the meta for six months. Then you ban it, and I bought it for thirty bucks a pop, and now I can't play it. But people also don't buy cards for 30 bucks a pop playing Netrunner. That's so, true. We don't ever want cards to get banned. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> our, yeah. oh for sure. Yeah, to be clear, I'm not <laughs> our goal is for that to yeah. not happen. In dev is like priority number one is create an enjoyable experience across yeah. the board. Priority number two is balance. And <laughs> yeah. balance is part of creating an enjoyable experience, but mm-hmm. it is not the top consideration necessarily. Yeah. yeah. I actually and love to hear that. That's my philosophy, at least. And that's kind of what I was talking about. Like, that's not everyone in Dev's philosophy necessarily. Um, oh, that's cool, too. Yeah. yeah. No, there's like a yeah. huge diversity of approaches in the Dev mm-hmm. team. All of them, like, complement each other so beautifully. It works really well. So CTM is like playing the Ninja Turtles fighting game on SNES and declaring with your friends in your home meta, no Donatello. I have two questions at the end here for you, Billy. First yes. question, what percentage of our audience do you think is going to get that? Get what? The Ninja Turtles thing? Yeah. Um, I didn't get it, and everyone's exactly like me, so 0%. Agreed. Uh, <laughs> second question. We actually, the last time that the Slums cast scooped some cards, we ended up with three of them in the World Championship winning deck and one of them making top 16. I'm going to put you on the spot here. How many of these four cards do you think are going to make the top 16 at the next World Championships? Um, Two of these cards will be represented, but mm. I don't know which ones. Okay. <laughs> That's just my gut feeling. That is that is allowable. I will allow that. <laughs> we'll check in at the end of uh, next World Championships and figure out if we got that number two correct. I'm looking forward to it. Well, that's the end of our episode today on the Slumscast. Thank you so much, Bilby, for coming on and talking to us about these cards, dev, all of those things. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It was extremely fun to be on the show. And I have to give it up for both of you, the work you did at Worlds. I was there. It was like such a fun event. It was amazing. And the whole event was awesome. The commentary was awesome. It was, uh, I had the time of my life. Yeah. So thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate you. We would have done this anyway, but for that very kind gesture, would you like to give some shout outs while you're here on the Slumscast? 
Oh yeah. Shout outs. Absolutely. It's hard to narrow it down. I mean, I got to give a shout out for just like literally everyone who works at Null Signal. Like it's stunning. I think how good Borealis is. I want to shout out everyone on dev because it is like a great honor and pleasure to work with them sincerely. So that would be Zoe, David, Keith, Xenos, Kevin, and Labs. I, I almost don't understand how we do work together so well. Like <laughs> we all bring like really distinct points of view to the dev process, but we always get along so well. All our meetings are so productive. It's really cool. Like we're all really open to each other's ideas and talk through everything in like the most civil and productive way I've ever seen a group of human beings do. It's wow. really cool. So yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well. Thank you again for coming on. It has been a pleasure and I'm looking forward to everyone seeing these cards and everyone getting to play with them. Yeah, I'm thrilled. I think it's going to be an absolute blast when Parhelion comes out. Mm -hmm. Oh, the set's so fucking fire. That is all the time we have for this week. I... You're probably asleep at this point. This is like three hours into the episode or something. (laughs) I certainly am. Well, regardless, to give you good dreams as you drift off, if you liked what you heard on this episode of the Slums Cast, go ahead and subscribe to the Slums Cast when you wake up. You should be able to do that wherever you're listening to the Slums Cast. You know, we're 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 available in places. You can you can subscribe to the podcast in places. Also, especially with an episode that we have scoops on, please consider sharing this directly with someone that you think will be interested in hearing these scoops. And hearing the stories behind these cards that you've heard in painstaking detail over the last couple hours. In addition, if you are interested in saying thank you to the Slums Cast for this episode, the best way to do that is go to Apple Podcasts or to Spotify or wherever. Give us a thumbs up. Give us a five-star rating. Leave us a review. We love getting reviews. We read them on the air. All of the ones we have ever gotten in the past, we have read on the air. It just helps us out in the algorithm, which helps more people hear episodes like the one that you just heard. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about the cards that you just got scooped to you, about the people that you just heard talk to you, about the co-hosts that you just heard host this episode, the best place to reach us is check the show notes. We've got a number of places you can reach us, assuming Twitter is still alive as of the time you're listening to this episode. Then that's one of them. Stimslack is another. GLC is another. And our Gmail account is another, though we check that a lot less frequently. If you have any concerns about the cards, about the people, about the co-hosts, unfortunately, those got pushed to Bell Tower. I'm just wondering if there's any anything interesting that kind of happened with uh, mapping out the rules for that ID. Because it's a wild ability. I did propose some pretty wild alternative <laughs> ways to implement it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those were mostly just like, let's throw some things at the wall. And I, I think the power counters version was always going to be it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're doing a draft and you have access to off- uh, out of faction agendas. Oh God, and helium Isawak three. and helium three deposit Ooh, are that's in the cool. pool together. What? That's a combo. <laughs> that's uh, if if you manage to actually trigger the idea ability on the helium three, that's a uh, that's a three three, right? <laughs> uh, 
that's a that that's four points. I or no wait, is it five points? Is healing three place two counters or one? Oh, is is it two? Oh my god, that would yeah. be a three four. Place up is. to two power counters on the card with at least one power counter. So it's it's wow. It's a corp charge effect up to twice. <laughs> that. Okay, that seems pretty good. Oh, oh, helium three is a four two. That's where I'm getting confused. Yeah. I thought it was it's a, a four two, and you can't install it or advance it the turn that you're scoring it. Yeah, but yeah, if you're in a draft and you have access to a Wayland ID or you know some other weird format where you have access to a Wayland uh, agenda in a Jinteki ID, and also uh, the agenda is from Lunar Cycle and the identity <laughs> is from now. <laughs> Yeah, uh, identity crisis right that's that's uh you, you basically you you build a legal deck and then you swap your id to an id from a different faction yeah but you'd still have to have like it has to be eternal <laughs> yeah. yeah oh my god but no yeah if you can pull off an isawak trigger with uh helium three deposit that's five points that's a lot of points yeah the <laughs> bastards did it they did it they made helium three deposit not awful what the fuck? It's a, it's a four, in these five. very specific weird format. Not all you had to do. Rules. All you had to do was make helium three deposits of four or five for it to be good. Jesus <laughs> <laughs> <This is> Christ! <laughs> I mean, hey, uh, a four three that you can't fast advance is something that happens. That was that was pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Four five that you can't fast advance. Also, yeah, okay, it's a little better. Tech. Technically, it's still only two points, and you just lower the requirement to win by three. Yeah, but that's yeah, basically yeah, five points. Yeah. Right, right. I, I, it's it's more fun to call it a four or five. <laughs> uh, okay. Is there anything in the game that cares about the distinction there? I know there was on the runner side. Because... If there were some way to DJ Fenris um, a corp ID, I guess you could Harmony MedTech, right? Or does Harmony MedTech say specifically six? Uh, Harmony Med Tech says each player needs one less agenda point to win the game. One yeah. less. Okay. Oh, okay. wow. Or possibly it says fewer. I don't know. It says fewer. Okay. Well, so, okay. <laughs> yeah. If it, Whenever they print Corp DJ Fenris, which they definitely won't print because that would be so dumb. Uh... <laughs> yeah, that would not be great. It would be not good. Also, it would yeah. be like uh, weirdly side unbalance or, or faction unbalanced because yeah the the three other corps get divisions and Waylon gets corpse oh yeah good point wait what because Waylon Waylon is a consortium right Waylon so, has no divisions it has like one or two I think uh because you know FFG and consistency yeah <laughs> uh but generally Waylon gets corp IDs like the, the okay. subtype corp Huh. And then there's Jemison, which has the subtype corporation. Why? It's about time we fix this. Oh, that that it, that, it dealt has me, a... that dealt me psychic damage. 